May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. John doesn't say why Jesus was up so late that night. Uh, perhaps he was up late filling out his NCAA brackets. I don't know. Maybe it was a little busted. Maybe it was a moment of solace. He just needed a little peace and quiet. Time to catch his breath. Do you ever do that? you ever need just a time where there's nobody around? Maybe you make yourself a cup of tea, you sit by the window, and you just collect your thoughts. Maybe you don't. I often do. You know, there's times where there's nobody there who wants to ask you a question or seek clarification or, you know, who, who requires of you some righting of a wrong that has been done in the world. I'm thinking that it might have been that sort of night for Jesus. We only have this story, um, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. There's only two people in the story. And so you might question, well, then how do we get it? You know, where did it come from? It, Jesus might have told the story to John, who then passed it along. Maybe, uh, maybe they were all sitting around. There are all these disciples sitting around the room, and, and Nicodemus comes, and, and Jesus is there. Or maybe it's just a few, and, and, and they're just not mentioned in the story. I think those are possibilities. But here's my vision. Here's what I think happened. And, and if you think I'm wrong, well, that's okay. You can be, you can be wrong. I, I, I think that they're, they're in a room and Jesus is awake, but no one else is. But they're all there together. Uh, maybe, maybe it is that John, somewhere in the midst of the conversation, sort of wakes up, but has the good sense to just keep quiet and pretend to be asleep. And Jesus is sitting there, and there's a knock at the door. He goes and he opens the door, cup of tea in hand, perhaps to stoke the fire. If you can't think of Jesus drinking a cup of tea, then I don't know. But he goes to the door and he opens it up and, 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 and there's this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an important man. He's a very important man. You notice how the text said, are you not a teacher in Israel? That's actually not what John wrote in his original. He said, are you not the teacher in Israel? There's the article before it. Are you not the, as in the head teacher in Israel? He's an important man. He's a Pharisee, we know. I think he's dressed well, perhaps much better than Jesus. He has the appearance of looking like the important man that he is. Which begs the question, why does he come at night? Why show up in the middle of the night or, or late into the evening? I mean, why not just go to see Jesus during the day? Lots of explanations. Perhaps he wanted a private audience. Perhaps Jesus is too busy during the day. But I think this. I think he goes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want anyone to see him going to Jesus. He is, after all, an important person. The teacher in Israel. And to be seen conversing with a wannabe teacher in Israel might be kind of bad for his reputation. But he shows up. Whatever the motive for coming at night... Whatever the reason, however Jesus might have been uh, at the time, he shows up at night and, and he begins to have a conversation. John tells us other information about Nicodemus. This part that he's a Pharisee. To be a Pharisee in the first century Israel was important. Not everybody was a Pharisee. Whenever I think of, at least when I used to think about first century Israel, I would kind of picture it like a Charlton Heston movie, you know? That everybody was walking around with these uh, uh, kind of garb on, they all looked exactly the same, and they were all priests and, and people who worked in the temple. Not at all the case. 
Much of the, much of the world in which Jesus lived in was a very much work-a-day world. In fact, most of the scholarship says that Pharisees only made up about 6% of the population of Israel. They were a very small, kind of narrow... They were powerful, they were influential, but they were not numerous. And so here you have this Pharisee, this strict religious conservative. That's what a Pharisee would have been. They were people who wanted to hold on to ancient traditions. They were very concerned about, um, about following the Ten Commandments. They were very concerned about keeping Sabbath. It was, it was a very high priority to them. They even had it figured out to the number of steps that one could walk on the Sabbath day without it constituting work. And if you were to get to that number of steps where you had reached your max, you were to sit down where you were, be that in the middle of the road or whatever, and wait until the Sabbath had passed. It was serious business to keep the Ten Commandments. Okay, you say, I got it. They're pretty strict. They're pretty rigid. I grew up in a family like that, maybe. I don't know. But you get the point, right? What are you saying? I'm saying this. Nicodemus is a religious man. He's a, he's a conspicuously religious person. He is Jewish. He keeps the Sabbath. He knows a lot about God. He doesn't come as a heathen, this kind of you know, radical, oh, you know, I've been, uh, I've been living in a hippie commune for a few, several years and, and now I'm finally coming back to kind of, you know, get my life straightened up. Nothing wrong with hippie communes. But, you know, I'm, I'm coming back from this. It, it's not like that. Nicodemus isn't coming to Jesus by night with a severe heroin problem, you know, and saying, you know, I, I want to get clean. It's not like that at all. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night as a Pharisee, as a leading Pharisee, as a strict religious conservative. And he says this, Jesus, we know that you have come from God. That's a pretty big admission. We know that you're godly. We know there's something about you that is very, that is very righteous. Uh, I wondered who the we is. You know, it's one person. We know. He's speaking for other people, isn't he? And I think this, in John chapter 2, you have Jesus driving the, the money changers out of the temple. Let me tell you, if you were a Pharisee and you were in that, that area that day, if you were in the temple, you would be applauding. The Pharisees were very unhappy with the way the temple was being run. They didn't have any control over it. They were religious, they were, they were um, all the sort of things that you would expect, but they had no control over the temple. They were very upset with the priest who did run the temple. And so to see Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple, driving them out, would have been a very good moment for a Pharisee. They would have been sitting up applauding. They wanted to do it themselves probably many times, but lacked the courage of their convictions. To see Jesus doing it, I think, I think that was really a very positive thing for many Pharisees. They see Jesus as someone who might have their sensibilities in heart. He might be someone like them. In fact, Jesus might even be a Pharisee himself, they're thinking. We know, we know that you've come from God. Not we think you've come from God. Not we suspect you come from God. We know. Because we see what you do, and we think this is the kind of stuff God would do. And so, you know, it's a sense of kind of positive affirmation at first. And Jesus should have said, well, thank you very much, Nicodemus. It's so nice of you to do that. Um, yeah, after all, a lot of people misunderstand me, but it seems that like you really do get me. 
Make a friend here, you know. Here comes a guy who's saying something nice about you. Just say thank you very much. Can't you just take a compliment? But that's not what he says, is it? He says, I'm sorry, Nicodemus, but no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Let me give you the shorthand thing. Nicodemus, you don't know jack about God. <laughs> you, know, you think you know, but you don't know anything. This is not the way to make friends. And influence people. You've got a very important person coming to your door. Saying very nice things about you. Take the compliment. And use it. Leverage it. But that's not what Jesus does. He corrects him. You know, being a priest, I, I spend a lot of time around people who know about God. They've been in church a long time, perhaps. Some of them, all of their lives. There are people I know who can't remember a day. My own children can't remember a day when they didn't go to church. My kids say that, you know, that they were born with a drug problem. They were drugged to church every time I went, you know. Always coming. They, they don't know a time. So they, they baptize and grow up and confirm. Every, you know, in the church. And a lot, of, a lot of people I know are just like that. They read books and listen to Christian radio. And know a lot about God. But Jesus is somewhat confrontational even to people like me and like others. Who grow up in that situation. People who could spend years in theological education. Maybe they could tell you about how St. Augustine formed a theology of predestination. Or how Calvin worked out his theology. Or what Wesley thought about the sacraments. But Jesus seems to say, you know what, that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter that you could teach a Sunday school class with, with great diligence. It doesn't matter that you would have a Ph.D. in religion and you could teach it at a university. That doesn't matter, which is what Nicodemus is. He is a religious professional. He is the teacher in Israel. And Jesus says to him, none of that seems to matter, Nicodemus. Until you have a spiritual birth, you do not even understand the kingdom. You can't understand it. Even religious instruction, as important as it is, is not enough. It can only take a person so far. The goal of religious instruction is not to fill a person's head with facts about God. My goal here is not to tell people about God, but is to lead them to believe that you can actually know God and not just know about Him. The new birth is not just enlightenment of ideas. It offers a person an opportunity to know God. Listen to, to, to verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What is he saying? What, that which is born of water. A lot of people have linked this to baptism, and perhaps it, it might have some overtones to baptism. But I think the next verse makes it clear that he's not necessarily talking about baptism. An ancient Jewish way of saying born of water is to be born of a human being. Okay, It is um, when, when someone is born, there is typically a big rush of water that comes with them. This is a, a physical birth. Birds and bees sort of stuff, okay? That which is born of a human is human. But you need to be born of the Spirit as well. Because with your birth does not come a spiritual life. Nicodemus is a child of Abraham. 
And this is what Paul is talking about in the New Testament letter as well. It doesn't matter your family. It doesn't matter your genetic DNA. He wouldn't have said that language. It's certainly anachronism. But he would have if he would have had the language of today. It doesn't matter your family of origin. I don't care if you're a Jew, he's saying to Nicodemus. I don't care if you're the most righteous Jew. I don't care about all the things that you know. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't even really understand it. The kingdom of God is not just about even wanting it. It's recognizing the entrance into the kingdom of God comes by grace. It comes by an act of God on our behalf. Listen, even believing... Even believing that we want to have a life where God is at the center of it is not enough because it is not our belief that saves us. It is an act of God, an act of God's grace. St. Paul says it this way, By grace you are saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. What's the that? I think the whole thing, by grace through faith. Not even our faith is our own. That is the gift of God. All of it is by grace. If today you know this spiritual life that I'm talking about, if you know what it means to have this spiritual rebirth, this this enlightenment of the soul, if you know what I'm talking about, you know that it has nothing to do with you. You didn't do it. I I know our language. We sometimes say, you know, I came to the Lord when, or, you know, I I found the Lord when I was 18 or 15 or 12 or whatever. I found the Lord. That's not the right language. I mean, if we want to be precise, I'm not usually a semantic technician, but if I'm going to be right now, nobody found the Lord. If you know the Lord, if you know Him in your heart, it's because He found you. The act is always about God's first act. Not ours. Ours is always a response. So even even the want to, even the desire, Nicodemus coming, knocking on the door at night is not about Nicodemus' desire to come and talk to Jesus. It's about what God is doing in his life already. You've probably never heard of this guy. He was a postal worker. His name was Jim Monaghan. And um, in 1959, he decided to buy a little pizza place by Eastern um, Michigan University. And his brother, Tom, had just gotten out of the Marines, and Tom was wanting to be an architect. But Jim said, hey, listen, there's this little pizza place here by the university. I think we can make some good money. Um, it's called Dominic's. And if you come and you, you, uh, you uh, join with me, you know, I'll take out a loan. The two of us will work together. And so he took out a loan for $900, and he bought Dominic's pizza plant, you know, this little pizza joint by, by the university. And they were working at it, and it was kind of struggling along. And, 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 so, um, and so Jim decided he wanted to go back to his postal job at the post office. And so he says to his brother, Tom, he says, Tom, listen, um, I'll sell you my half of the business for your Volkswagen Beetle. It was like, you know, like, whatever, you know, a 1930 Volkswagen Beetle. You know, and so he gives him his Volkswagen Beetle, and, and Tom takes over the whole business. And he works really hard, and the business begins to grow. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And Tom changes the name from Dominic's to Domino's. And um, Tom is listed today as one of um, uh, Forbes' 400 richest Americans in the world. Hundreds of billions of dollars from selling pizzas. And his brother missed the opportunity because he wanted a Volkswagen Beetle and a steady paycheck. But that's only money. That's an easy opportunity to walk by. 
I mean, I'm sure he kicks himself when he pays his green fees. But, you know, in the end, it's only money, right? Imagine, imagine if someone had a desire to know God and walked away from that. Imagine what a lost opportunity that would be. Amen.